There we go. That's my secretary. We're in John 19. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. And um, we left off uh, right around verse six. So where we are in the life of Jesus Christ is at the very end. He, this is the day he's going to be um, crucified. And he is, he has a series of trials. Actually, there's a total of seven, three religious and three civil trials. That's makes six. And the seventh trial is when some people don't include this one, but I do. It's when Pilate says, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? And the people choose Barabbas over Jesus. We talked about that last time. Um, so he's come through most of those really, those trials. He's been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. John skips the whole agony in Gethsemane because uh, he wants to really get to the crucifixion and more importantly, the resurrection. So um, Pilate has said and will say tonight that he finds no guilt in Jesus. A, a total, I believe, of six times he says that he believes Jesus is innocent. And yet he has him whipped and ends up having him crucified, all because Pilate's willing to compromise for political gain, for his own self-interest, to save his own hide, and basically because he's not strong in his convictions. Um, so, but all through this, we see that Christ is in control. John is weaving the story together masterfully by telling us about what's going on. And as he's doing so, telling us, and that that just happened fulfills this prophecy from the Old Testament. And that fulfills this one. So that's what we'll talk about when we're there. So that I know that you're awake. Say amen. Amen. Oh, good one. Somebody went like that back there. I woke me up. Good one. And those of you online, say amen or wave your hand or something. Yeah, there you go. I see you there. Wonderful. Okay. John chapter 19. I'm going to, even though we're going to start in verse six, I'm going to start in verse one, just to give you the flavor of where we are. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now that's flogged means whipped or scourged is the old English term. What's amazing about that is I should have really gone back before that because He's just said he's innocent. I find no guilt in him. And yet he has him whipped. You may ask why. He does it so that he's hoping that when he shows them the bloody, swollen, beaten up Jesus, that they will feel sorry for him and, and say, okay, you punished him. You can let him go now. But it has just the opposite effect, we'll see. Pilate took and had him flogged. By the way, there were three types of flogging or whipping that the Romans did. There was a very light one, just to teach you a lesson. There was a medium one um, that was pretty severe. And then there was the worst one. Scholars think he got the second one here, and he'll get the third one when he's handed over to be crucified. The third one is the worst one that leaves you just that close to death. Um, they would whip with two, two guys, four people would be a crucifixion um, sort of squad, if you will. Um, they would whip the person, two people whipping them alternately. So the shoom, shoom, just keeps coming. It's not one guy who gets tired. It's two taking turns, big, long leather whip with it varied, but it could be balls of iron, pieces of shells, pieces of metal, pieces of bone was very common. And they would just whip you on both sides, not just the back, the front as well, uh, to the point where your flesh is just shredded kind of thing. Be below the you know, flesh, the, the skin level that would be into the muscles and the tendons. I don't mean to gross you out here, but 
it's a fact. In any case, they, he had him flogged. Verse two, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, hail king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. So this crown of thorns, we talked about it last time. Thorns, if you, it's always a good idea when you see a word in the Bible, thorns. Where does it first appear? It's almost always very instructive. Thorns first appear in Genesis chapter 3, of all things, very early. Thorns are one of the things God um, gives to man as part of the curse for sinning. Adam is told that now there will be thorns and thistles in his garden. It'll be much harder to garden weeds and all that, right? You can, every time you're weeding your garden, you can thank Adam. There wouldn't have been weeds without the fall. So he's saying that that curse of sin, he's wearing it on his head as if he's the king of sinners, if you will. So he's wearing a crown of thorns. The thorns were very long and that would cause bleeding and great pain as well. So they're mocking him. Uh, as is predicted, we're going to look at at some point Isaiah 53 tonight. Once more, verse four, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there. The reason they're gathered outside is they don't want to go inside because it's the home of a Gentile. And then they would be defiled. They're so careful not to be defiled so they can celebrate Passover. Yet they're murdering an innocent man. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you. To let you know, here it comes again, I find no basis for a charge against him. Not guilty. They had brought Jesus to him for a verdict. He gives the verdict. They don't accept it, right? The verdict is not guilty. No basis for a charge. Verse 5, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, now NIV here has, here is the man. And, and literally, it's behold the man. Uh, Eche homo. Uh, and he says to him, behold the man, look at this poor fellow. In other words, he's saying, look, look what he's gone through. Look what a mess he is. Look how bloody he is. He's no danger to you or to Rome. Not guilty. See you later. Next kind of thing. Um, but unfortunately, it has the worst and opposite effect. So as soon as they see that, they yell, verse 6, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. There it is. Again, not guilty. Now, he's doing a rare thing that he's not supposed to do. Rome had, were the only ones that had in the Roman Empire the right of capital punishment, the right to kill a prisoner, a criminal. The Jews, when they killed people, they never crucified. They did stoning, where you throw someone down and throw large stones on them until you crush them into oblivion, basically. But Jesus in the Old Testament and in John 3, he repeats it. The Son of Man, Jesus, favorite title for himself, has to be lifted up. So stoning's not going to work with prophecy. So they want him crucified, and they want the Romans to do it because they can't do it themselves. He's saying, okay, I give you permission. You guys go crucify him. Very unusual. It was not usually done. You take him and crucify him. Verse 7, the Jew, Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Now, they had the three religious trials, I told you, Annas, Caiaphas, 
uh, yeah, Annas, Caiaphas, Caiaphas, three religious trials. In those trials, the charge was that blasphemy claims to be the son of God. But I'll show you in a second. They had all kinds of charges. They were throwing everything at the wall to see what would stick. They've not brought up blasphemy to Pilate because he's a Roman. He's a pagan. They have all kinds of Roman gods. Pilate doesn't care about blasphemy. So they're running out of excuses and charges. So they, now they try um, explaining that he claimed to be God. Notice that even though he's not guilty, the unsaved are yelling, crucify. The hatred of God sometimes is veiled in the world as indifference. Eh, God, I could take it or leave it. Deep down, there's a hatred for God among unbelievers. So they switch to Leviticus 24, 16. You don't need to turn there. Basically, it says anyone who blasphemes the Lord must be put to death. To blaspheme the Lord is to say something about God that's not true, or to call yourself God, or something else, or someone else God. He's claiming to be the son of God, making himself out to be God. The weird thing is, that's now the charge, and it's true. It's not blasphemy, because he actually is the son of God. But over the course of all the trials, Here's how much they had no idea what to charge him with. They never could find evidence. They charged him with first Matthew 26, threatening to destroy the temple. Do you remember when he said destroy this temple in John 2? And in three days, I will raise it up. He meant his body. John says it in the next verse. They think he means destroy the temple and, th and I'll raise it and I'll rebuild the whole temple in three days. Um, then the next charge was he's a criminal or a malefactor is the old uh, English word just a criminal, no charge, really just he's a bad guy. Then they said he is, Luke 23, perverting the nation with his false doctrine. Then also in Luke 23, he's forbidding to give taxes to Caesar. See how they're just throwing everything at the wall, hoping something will stick and nothing does. Then in Luke 23, he's stirring up the people. They're the ones stirring up the people to yell, crucify, we want Barabbas and all that. Then Luke 23, he says he's a king. That's against Caesar. And now this last one, John 19, being son of God. So Pilate is trying everything to get out of this whole thing. John skips the whole hand washing. Do you remember that? Pilate asks for a bowl of water eventually and says, I washed my hands of this whole thing, as if that absolves him of the responsibility. He has the power. He could say, he's not guilty. I'm letting him go. Now get out of my office kind of thing but he doesn't because he's worried about his own hide and his own job. There's already been, we said last time, three weeks ago, all kinds of charges against Pilate for being unfair and brutal with the Jewish people filed in Rome. He's afraid one more of those bad reports, he might lose his job. Years later, tradition has it. We don't have it for sure. It's not in the word. Years later, he does lose his job and he kills himself, Pilate. In any case, so they're saying, crucify him. He says, you crucify him. I don't, I don't find any charge against him. Now they bring up blasphemy, verse 7. We have a law. According to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Okay? Now, Jews are monotheistic. Mono meaning one, theistic meaning God. They believe in one God. But Christians are too. We believe in one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are the one God. One what God, three 
whose, if you will. But for a Roman, for, for Pilate, Pontius Pilate, this has a whole different meaning. The Romans believed in a thing called demigod, gods, sorry. Demigods were people that were, according to their myths, gods in human flesh. And if you angered one of them or whipped or beat up one of them, they could take revenge on you in a way that would go far beyond anything the Roman Empire could do. So you're going to see Pilate's whole face is going to change now. As soon as he hears, he claimed to be the son of God. Verse eight, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And that's the, the, how the Greek really reads. E even exceedingly afraid, even more afraid than he already was. Because now he, he was been, he's been afraid of the public opinion of the Jews. Now he's starting to be afraid of Jesus. That's what it means when he's more afraid hearing that. Verse 9, and he went back inside the palace. So he summons Jesus again and asks, what an interesting question. Where, where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. If you've been in this Bible study for any length of time, you know that whenever there's a question, I, I like to answer it. So what's the question? He's asking Jesus, where are you from? Okay. So you could say Bethlehem is where he was born, right? He means really what's your origin? Because he's heard he might be a God. You could say Nazareth. He grew up in Nazareth. That would be a correct answer too. But the truthful, totally truthful answer is heaven. I'm from heaven, right? I'm from outside of space and time. I've always existed, right? Which would probably get him whipped again if he said the truth. Earlier, Pilate asked when Jesus said that he was the truth and everyone that listens to the truth believes in him and follows him. Pilate said sarcastically, if you remember a chapter ago, oh, what is truth? So he knows Pilate's not interested in truth. He, Pilate asks, where are you from? Jesus says, nothing. Pilate is the most powerful man in that region. He's dealing with a guy that's about to be crucified. What Pilate is used to is guys about to be crucified, begging for their lives, claiming their innocence, kissing his rear, if you will, doing anything to please get me out of this jam. Jesus is calm and it's intimidating to Pilate. He's silent. We're going to look at Isaiah 53 in a little while. Old Testament predicts everything we're reading here, where it says that as a, a lamb is led to the, to the shearers, so he opened not, is silent, he opened not his mouth. Jesus says absolutely nothing. So where do you come from? Jesus doesn't even bother to answer. Verse 10, do you refuse to speak to me, capital M, capital E, in the Greek, it's emphatic. Do you refuse to speak to me of all people? He's saying, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Your whole future, Jesus, is in my hands. Don't you realize that? Is he right? No right? Jesus has the power to lay down his own life. Jesus is the one in control. He's about to tell Pilate that, but it's an interesting thing. Do you refuse to speak to me? Aren't you impressed with my authority and my office and power? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Verse 11, Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given you 
given to you, sorry, from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Jesus explains what Paul explains in Romans 13. Keep your finger in John. Go two books to the right, past Acts to the book of Romans, and go to chapter 13. We won't be here long. Romans 13. Is, there's a surprising thing in there. If you have watched American elections go a certain way, I'm not saying which ones, could have been several years ago, could have been Bush, could have been Reagan, it could have been Clinton, whatever your persuasion is. If you've seen elections go a weird way, you need to read Romans 13, verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Okay, I'm good with that. God's in control. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm with you. Then read the next sentence in verse one. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Then the next verse says, if you're rebelling against the authority that exists, you're rebelling against what God's instituted. There's human government for a reason to, to maintain uh, order in the individual countries. So does that mean Trump, Bush, Reagan, Obama, Biden? Yes. There's no except Biden doesn't say that, right? Except Trump, which is doesn't say that. Does that mean, let's make it harder now. Does that mean Mao Zedong? Does that mean Hitler? There's no exception there. Sometimes humanity in the countries we live in, we get the leader, listen, that we deserve, not the one we want. Sometimes it's a judgment on a country to get, or a pe certain people to get a certain leader. Have no fear, though. There's no leader in America or in any part of the world who is totally autonomous and sovereign. All of them, whether they know it or not, Pilate doesn't know it, answer to God. And God stops them from doing certain things. But in this story, we have Pilate with his own free will, but Jews with their own free will, Judas, Caiaphas, the high priest with his own free will, and Jesus with his own free will. But God's will is that Jesus get crucified on Passover. Guess what? It's going to happen. There's no way it's not going to happen in any case. So read that verse again. You would have no authority, Jesus says, if it wasn't given to you from above, meaning God gave it to you. So, uh, and that's true. And Pilate's never heard this before, right? He just likes the big ego trip of being in power. But the second half of the verse is really interesting. And scholars have debated who he's talking about. I'll tell you what the majority opinion is. Here's the sentence. Therefore, the one who handed, you, handed me over to you has the, is guilty of a greater sin. He says, you have, the authority you have, Pilate, is from God. However, the one that hired, that handed me over to you, Pilate, is guilty of a greater sin. Now, you have heard, haven't you, that all sin is an affront against God. Every sin is bad. Oh, it was just a little sin. It's still sin, right? But there are degrees of sin. He says it here, right? Whoever handed Jesus over to Pilate, to the Roman authorities, has the greater sin. Okay, the nominees, and there's only two, you read all the commentaries, it's either Judas, 
or it's Caiaphas, the high priest. The Judas had three years with Jesus. He knew, he saw the miracles, he heard the wisdom, he saw the multiplying of the loaves and fish, he saw Jesus calm storms, walk on water, do I need to go on, cast out demons, raise the dead? Judas knew, or should have known, right? However, the majority opinion is Caiaphas, is who he's talking about. Who's that? The Jewish high priest, whose job it is to shepherd Israel religiously governmentally as much as he can. He can't do much governmentally because of Rome. Why Caiaphas? Because he knows every word in the Old Testament. He knows Psalm 22, which we're going to look at tonight. He knows Isaiah 53, which we're going to look at tonight. He knows uh, Zechariah 9 and Zechariah 12, which we're going to look at tonight in a little while. A lot of little detours coming. Why do you mention those verses, Joe? Simple. Because when you read those verses and you're an honest person, you have to say, Jesus, it has to be Jesus. That's the Messiah of Israel. There can be no one else. God closes every other possible door to someone else being the Messiah. They should have known. Caiaphas should have known. Caiaphas knew that he was the, Jesus was the Messiah and he crucified him anyway. There's an interesting verse in one of the other gospels that says that Pilate knew that the Jews had turned Jesus over to him because of, wait for it, jealousy. He's got the bigger crowds, the more respect. They're calling him Lord and Rabbi, and we don't like that here. And he yelled at us, and he overturned the tables. He's a rebel. He's a rebel against all hypocritical religion, right? Okay, so um, he's talking probably about the high Israel's high priest. The weird thing is, Jesus, I'll show you in a little while in this chapter, is the real high priest of Israel. And there's even hints in this chapter and the next one about that, but we'll wait for that for now. Um, the one who's handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. The, that's verse 11. The bottom line there is this. There are degrees of punishment in hell and degrees of reward in heaven and degrees, listen, of responsibility on earth. What do you mean by that? Let's take a guy that just heard about Jesus. He lives in some tribe in outer Africa. Somebody witnessed to him about Christ. And he has a basic idea, but he's learned very little. And somebody else has lived in America where they've heard the gospel preached. They know the whole story. They grew up in a Christian church. They've got all this knowledge and they rebel against it and don't believe it, that's a greater responsibility. With greater knowledge comes greater responsibility to deal with that knowledge. You know the truth. Therefore, it's a big sin when we who know the truth rebel against God. Um, okay, so enough about that. So that's what he says. The one who handed me over to you, notice he doesn't answer about the where you're from. You wouldn't believe me if I told you, right? That's the right answer is what he would say. But he does answer him about the power thing. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate worshiped Jesus and became a Christian. I wish it said that, but it doesn't. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. You say, how? He's the highest power there governmentally. What do you mean tried? He could have just said, go free. He tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept on shouting. In the Greek, it's continually, if you let this man go, 
you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Did you notice how the charge just changed? The latest charge was he said he was the son of God. That didn't work. Pilate's trying to get him released. Now they use the threat of we're going to tell on you to Rome that a guy said he was king over Caesar's empire and you let him go. You're going to be in big trouble. Now he's got self-interest. He wants to protect his own hide even more. So that's what they're doing. You're no friend of Caesar. We're going to send some people to Rome and tell on you. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out. This is for a formal final judgment where final judgments were spoken. He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the pavement in Aramaic. It's Gabatha. Okay. Sounds like Golgotha kind of. This is the place of final judgment. It's a bima seat. If you know that word from the Bible. Okay. So he goes down and sits down on the judgment seat. Six times he has said, I find no guilt in this man. So the verdict should be very simple and very short, but it's not. Um, the verse 14, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. Now, a lot of the commentaries think what's going on here is Pilate knows I got to let this guy go. This poor guy that's done nothing wrong. These jealous Jewish leaders want him killed. And I can't find a way out of this. So I might as well have a little fun. I might as well stick it to them. Stick the knife in and turn it. And say, okay, you Jewish people, here's your king. And they, that's an insult to them. He's a bloody mess with a crown of thorns. He looks kind of ridiculous to them, right? Can't get much lower. So that's why he says, here is your king. But they shouted, verse 15, take him away, away with him, crucify him. That is the, the crime, the punishment, sorry, that was reserved for the worst of the worst of the worst criminals. Okay, there were other punishments the Romans used. It wasn't he stole a loaf of bread. Okay, crucify him. It would be only for the worst of the worst. They want him crucified. I believe they're doing this of their own free will. And yet I believe the Holy Spirit's guiding this whole process. He's got to be crucified. If he had said, go stone him and they stoned him, then all the prophecies about the Messiah are wrong. He ends up dying on the ground, not lifted up. He doesn't have his hands pierced, side pierced. All that's predicted. Okay. Um, take him away, crucify him. He asks, shall I crucify? Notice the dig again, your king. He's so angry at them. He's being sarcastic now. Okay. When he says twice, this is your king, this bloody mess. Okay. This is enough to push them over the top. And they say something that is blasphemy. And that is the Jews say, end of verse 15, we have no king but Caesar. Ouch. The Jews in that day and before that, and even today, pray a prayer where they say, God, you are our only king. They say, we have no king but Caesar. They're throwing off God 
just to get this guy crucified. They're throwing away all their messianic Messiah hopes, all because they hate Jesus so badly. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Ouch. If you have wondered, by the way, in the Gospel of Matthew, in this passage, Jesus, uh, Pilate talks about him, Jesus being innocent again, and the Jews say the most horrific thing, which is, let his blood, pointing to Jesus, be on us and our descendants. In other words, the guilt for his blood, put that on my account and our account and our kids and our descendants, descendants, descendants. If you look at human history and wonder, why have the Jews been so persecuted? Not just Hitler, six million at least Jews killed under Hitler, but in all kinds of other countries and in all, all kinds of other situations. How many have heard the term anti-Semitism, right? It's, there's a term for hating Jews. Do I? Absolutely not. They're God's chosen people. They just don't get the gospel, most of them yet. They will at the end. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11, which speaks of Romans 9, the Jews in the past. Romans 10, the Jews presently when Paul's writing. Romans 11, the Jews in the future will come to recognize their Messiah. We're going to look at a verse that talks about that in the future. But for now, their eyes have been blinded, and the Gentiles, that's most of us here, are grafted in, and we believe. But they have renounced their own God. We have no king but Caesar. That's blasphemy biblically. They said it, not Jesus. Verse 16, Pilate insisted, this man's innocent, let him go. No. Nope. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, it sounds like he's handing him over to them, the Jews. In a sense, he is, but he's really handing them over to the little crucifixion squad, usually four guys and then a centurion with them, five total, that would do the crucifixion. He's saying, okay, I give up. Go ahead, crucify him. So the soldiers took charge of or led Jesus away. Pretty amazing that an innocent man, the greatest man, the only man that ever lived with no sin, is going to be brutally murdered. God, the creator, comes to planet Earth, and we killed him. It's unbelievable. People have asked, whose fault really is this? Seems like it's the Jews for turning him in. No, it's the Romans. They're the ones that beat him up and nailed him to a cross. And when Mel Gibson was making the movie, The Passion of the Christ, he insisted on his hand. It's the only part of him that appears in that movie. Do you know about this? His hand is the one in the frame when the camera is closed in on his Jesus's wrists when the, he's hammering the spike in there as a way of saying, who sent Jesus to the cross? Me, you, everyone who ever sinned. Well, that's everybody. You got it, right? It's my fault as much as it's the Jews, as much as it's the Romans, Caesar, whoever you want to mention, we all put him there. If this doesn't soften your heart toward a God that will demote himself to a humble human being and bleed and out and die for you and I, nothing will. Shall we keep reading now that I've bummed you out completely? So um, 
There are three crosses, by the way. Two thieves, the thieves on the cross, who are also insurrectionists and murderers, we learned from the other Gospels. The third cross is for, wait for it, Barabbas. It's his cross. Barabbas is free in favor of Jesus. We said three weeks ago, do you remember? Bar Abbas means Bar, son of Abbas or Abba, the father. Barabbas's name is son of the father, who goes free so that the son of the father, capital F, dies in his place. In a way, you and I, guilty, are Barabbas, aren't we? And he's dying in our place. If you miss the love, you miss uh, everything here. Um, let's see. Earlier, the Jews said in this gospel, we have never been slaves to anyone. I think it's John 8, which is another blatant lie. They were slaves to the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans. You could go on and on, right? We did Daniel before this. Do you remember? They're constantly in control of one, uh, of one country controlling them or another. Okay, let's keep rolling. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Pretty good. Are you awake online? A couple of you are sleeping on the couch. Okay. Uh, I don't blame you. All right. Um, so. They hand him over to be crucified. The soldiers take charge of him. Verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha or Golgotha, some people say. Okay, carrying his own cross. Now, you grew up in America, most of you, probably just about all of you. Um, well, let me, let me back up one, one thing I forgot. At this point in the other gospels, he gets whipped again okay the the normal crucifixion process you don't just nail him you whip him well they already whipped him they whipped him again so he's going to be even weaker than the others that are being crucified they whip him again um they uh he was slapped in the face and beaten in the trial with Annas. He was beaten in the Caiaphas trial. He was scourged by Pilate. The soldiers beat him in uh, John 19, 13. Um, they beat him with a rod in Mark 15. So when you put it all together, he is beaten up, okay? No sleep, no food, probably no water. Um, and we already talked about that. Oh, you know what? I want to go one more place. Acts 2, 23. Can we go there? It, this this goes to so uh, one book to the right Acts chapter two, verse twenty three I think it is, yeah Acts two Peter's going to give a sermon. I want you to see in this one verse human responsibility for their sin of crucifying him and God's sovereignty making it all happen. Watch two twenty three of Acts. This man that's Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. How did it all happen? God's purpose and foreknowledge, the sovereignty of God. That's why it happened. With the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Both human responsibility and divine sovereignty coming together. Judas betrayed him of his own free will. And yet Jesus says, but woe to the man who betrays me. It'd be better for him if he wasn't born. Both are true. Okay, now that you're totally confused, let's keep rolling. Let's talk about crosses. Everybody knows the typical 
cross. I don't know if you can see it. Can you see it in the video behind me here? Kind of. Most of you can. A cross, we know, is a vertical bar and a horizontal bar, right? It's been said that it's interesting that it's the vertical and the horizontal. Okay, there are all kinds of theories about the cross. The St. Andrew's cross is an X or a T where the crossbar is at the top. You with me? Not a uh, lowercase T, but a capital T, or is it an X? Some believe it's either one of those. Most of the scholars I could read say the cross you're used to seeing, people wear a little cross, the one that's back there, I don't know if you can see it, is the correct one. Okay, there's a third theory that Jehovah's Witnesses believe this. No cross, one pole. The hands were nailed over the head, both feet were nailed underneath, one pole. So we got one pole, we got an X, we got a T, and then we have a cross. Okay, I'm going to show you the evidence now that it was the cross that we think it is. Going back uh, into the early uh, Christian church, Justin Martyr, who's a church father, 100, he lived from 100 to 165 AD. He says traditional cross in his writings, the two beams, just like we always see it. That's one thing. In John 21, do you remember after he's risen, Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. Do you remember? When you're old, people will take you where you don't want to go, and they'll what? Stretch out your hands. Do you remember that? Peter ends up getting crucified upside down, but crucified this way. If it's an X, the hands are up here. If it's a pole or a T, then that doesn't work. Okay, stretch out the hands. This, we're, what we're about to read, says that he's crucified with somebody at his left hand and his right hand. Another hint. Also, we know that he um, is carrying, I just forgot the name of it, but the, there's a name for just the crossbar. That's what he's carrying. Most scholars don't think he carries the whole cross. It would be extremely heavy. Um, let's see. Next thing is they put a sign Remember, this is Jesus Christ. Uh, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Where is it? Over the head. Okay. If his hands are there, it's a pole. There's no room for that. If he's out like this and it's an X, there's no place to put the sign. I know this is probably too technical. Who cares? I care. Uh, the T doesn't work either because there's no place above his head to put it. The most traditional cross is probably the correct one. Um, so don't throw away your crosses. That's probably the right one. Thomas says, unless I see the imprints of the nails, plural, in his hands, nail, nail, nails. If he's done this way, then there would be one nail there probably. Wouldn't uh, make sense as well. Um, okay. Yeah, we already talked about that. So just a little trivia there for you uh, in case you're falling asleep. Now you're for sure asleep. All right. Golgotha means the place of the skull. Question is, why? I'll give you the three theories. The most likely one is the hill on which it was, that they're pretty sure uh, it was. The geography from far away looks like a skull. Simple as that. Tradition had it, this is pretty weird, Jewish tradition had it, that the skull of Adam, the first man, is buried there. I don't know where you get that, but I'm throwing it out there. The other one is 
that there were so many crucifixions there, there were skulls laying around, doesn't make a lot of sense to me or most scholars. So in any case, um, that's where they're going to crucify him. Verse 18, there they crucified him and with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. The other gospels spend way more time on the crucifixion than John does. John wants to get to he died, a couple things he said on the cross, the fact that he died, and he's going to rise from the dead. The, and plus he knows when he's writing his gospel, it's years after, century, decades after the other gospels are written. Everybody's got Mar Matthew, Mark, and Luke copied, copied all over the place. John's just adding what he remembers that they forgot in a lot of cases. So he doesn't spend a lot of time on the crucifixion. Crucifixion was a brutal form of torturous death. Victims were stripped naked. You've seen Jesus with the little loincloth. It's a nice thought. It ain't true. They were, the whole point was shame, public nakedness with a sign with your name and the crime you committed that you would wear around your neck when you went to where you're going. And then it would be over your head for everyone to see as a warning, a deterrent against crime in the Roman Empire. Don't mess with us. Look what could happen to you kind of thing. Okay. Plus there's the whole shame thing. The, the victim already, his skin ripped to shreds would already be weak, would be dehydrated, be in shock, searing pain from the nails. I don't want to make, to make you ladies sick, but anyway, you die ultimately of asphyxiation because you have to push yourself up on your legs to open your lungs, to be able to take a breath. Eventually you grow so tired, you can't do it. Some Roman crosses had, believe it or not, a seat for you to sit on, which sounds like, well, isn't that nice? All it does is prolong death, makes it longer for you. There's no record of Jesus having that. Um, but John, you're going to see is very, very brief with his crucifixion story anyway. Let's take our two-minute break right now. It's a good time for those of you that need to go throw up to do that, and then we'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. I'm going to turn my screen off, but I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. There we go, and we're back. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Are you still awake out there? Amen. Amen. Oh, good one. Um, okay, so verse 18 says, there, there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle or Jesus centered one translation has. So I like this idea of Jesus centered. He's in the middle of low company, the lowest people, the people that are so bad, they're going to be killed. He's the in the middle of them, the king of sinners, if you will. He is the central figure in human history. Jesus Christ is. He is um, centered between, because he's lifted up, between mankind down here and God. He's the bridge, if you will. That term will come back later, by the way. Um, we already talked about that. By the way, the word excruciating means from the cross. Cruce in excruciating is the cross. Um, we already talked about that. So, there he is between two sinners. In the Gospel of Matthew, they both, both guys left and right, are hurling insults at him. One changes his mind, as you know, and becomes saved. Um, if we have time, we'll look at that as well. Um, so 
normally, yeah, we already talked about that. Normally, um, as I said, they would wear a placard around their neck with the name and the crime that they committed. So let's talk about the little sign here. Verse 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This is another way that Pilate is sticking it to the Jews who twisted his arm and made him do what he didn't want to do. The last thing those Jewish leaders wanted, the first thing they wanted is crucifying. The last thing they wanted is with the name King of the Jews above him, a criminal. The King of the Jews is a bleeding out, sweaty, gross, you know, swollen mess. He does it to stick the needle in. Notice that the, if you read all four Gospels, the sign verbiage differs slightly. Probably they're all paraphrasing, and the true thing that was written is, and it would be long, by the way, is this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, what's interesting is verse 20. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. They always crucified on a highway, okay, where the mo most people could see it. Grotesque, probably one of those things you're walking with your children. You go, don't look, honey, right? It's so sickening to see, but it's a warning to society. So they do it near the city. The sign was written, notice this, in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So those words, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. By the way, Nazareth was a very, very um, looked down upon sort of place. I don't know if that's an adjective, but you know what I'm saying. People hated Nazareth. It was considered a little hick town that was worthless. So to say, this is your king, the guy from Nazareth, is another way to stick it to them. It's a long sign written in three different languages. Aramaic is what most Jews spoke at that time. If you watch the movie, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, every word is in Aramaic. Uh, Eli, Eli Lama Sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Aramaic, okay? That's right in the Bible. Most of the Bible, by the way, Hebrew, Old Testament, Greek, New Testament, but there's occasionally Aramaic, that's Aramaic. It's written in Aramaic, the language of the Jews, at that time, Latin, the official language, the legal language of the Roman Empire, and Greek, the street language of pretty much everybody in that whole area. Three different languages. Have you ever grown up? I had to research this because I was wondering, because I remembered my Catholic days. Do you ever remember seeing the cross, Jesus on the cross, and a placard up here that says I-N-R-I? Anybody? Raise your hand if you've ever seen that. A few of you are raising your hand. Inri, right? I-N-R-I. Um, so I remembered that this week and started researching it. The Jews would often abbreviate the charge in one or more languages. They'd write it out and then they'd abbreviate it. I-N-R-I stands for I-E-S-U-S, Iesus, or Jesus, which is Jesus. First letter, not J, I. Nazarenus, Nazarene. Rex, meaning what? Anybody know? King. And then Iudeorum. If you get the notes, you'll see it. I can't pronounce it, but um, King of the Jews. So it's an abbreviation, I-N-R-I, for Jesus, Nazareth, King, Jews. In case you were, that'll be on the test, so you should probably write it down. Just kidding. What an amazing thing 
that the God of the universe who created the tree that made the um, cross is going to hang on a cross completely innocent and not uh, and no one's going to be there to help him. Not even God, his father, because it's God's will. When Jesus was born, Mary was told that she would have a child who would be king and reign on a throne over an eternal kingdom. That alone should have woken Mary up to hmm, no ordinary child. How can you have an eternal throne if you're a human being, right? Um, when he's a toddler, not when he's a baby, the wise men come looking for him. Do you remember? They saw the star and they're searching for a king in, uh, uh, in the early New Testament, the king of one who was born king of the Jews or king of Israel. Jesus said earlier in this book, my kingdom's not of this world. Remember he told Pilate that last chapter? Uh, For this reason I born and this reason I came into the world. In Revelation two times, he's called king of kings and lord of lords. Pretty amazing. Maybe, one, one scholar said, maybe the fact that the sign was so public and mentioned the word king of the Jews might have been the reason that the thief on the cross, when he, when the Holy Spirit drew him and he changed his mind and became saved, said to him, do you remember? Among other things, remember me when you come into your what? Kingdom, right? Kind of interesting. That took faith because he doesn't look like a king, all bloody and and barely able to breathe, right? Okay, so um, let's go back to the text. We're still in chapter 19, and we're going to pick it up in verse... Uh, So many of them read the sign. Yeah, verse 21. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate. Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Okay. Finally, Pilate stands up for something. It doesn't matter. But verse 22, Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. Get out of my office. Okay, I put that part in, but you know what I mean right? All of a sudden, he's got the courage of his convictions. He knows the guy's innocent, but he's going to stand about what he wrote. I personally believe what he wrote was inspired by God. This is Jesus of Nazareth, human, the king of the Jews, divine, both. An amazing thing. Um, So what I've written, I've written, leave me alone, basically, is what he says. Uh, Verse 23, When the soldiers, I'm looking at my watch because I want to get to the Old Testament here. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares or groups, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. So uh, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. That's verse 23. We're going to camp here for a second. First of all, the normal garments of a Jewish man, they would be five okay but they're dividing up four and then that we're going to use the seamless garment as the fifth you with me so far okay so what would be the four robe an outer cloak okay um sort of like a bathrobe but different a little bit sandals piece number two a belt they would all have and that some kind of a head covering okay so the four guys that are doing the crucifixion get to you, know, you take the belt, she'll take this, he'll take the sandals, it wouldn't be a woman, he'll take the sandals, etc. And they're dividing the four of them up. This was normally done that if you're a crucifier, someone that does that for a living, what a job to have, you get to, you get something from the victim, 
If he has a Rolex, you get that. Just kidding. Um, okay, so that's what they're getting. But then they come to this seamless robe with the undergarment remaining, a seamless undergarment woven in one piece from top to bottom. This would be unusual, okay? Way more expensive that it's all woven in one piece of fabric. Way more expensive. Why is this detail in there? Well, we'll get to it. Um, but first of all, they cast lots for it, which is gambling, okay? The most common way, that, there was a way they did it with dice. There was a way they did it with coins, almost like flipping a coin or a series of coin flips, or with different lengths of sticks that you would hide how long they are and they'd all look the same and you pick one and whoever gets the short stick or the long stick would win depending on what rules they had. They're gonna gamble for his clothes for that seamless garment. That seamless garment is not really underwear, but think of it as a t-shirt that goes down to the knees, even a little lower, okay? But all one piece, seamless, okay? So uh, the tunic worn next to the skin. Um, Exodus 23, sorry, Exodus 28 has an interesting thing. It says that the high priest wore a seamless garment. What are you saying? That he, there he is. He doesn't look like a high priest to me. He's all bloody and bruised and swollen. He's acting as the high priest. What does the high priest do? Among other things, the high priest performs the sacrifice. He kills the lamb. Okay. You say, so what's he going to kill? He is the high priest. He is the lamb, right? There's been all kinds of songs written. Michael Bublé has one. There was a Barry White song. There was a Bee Gees song where it's some way or another is saying, you're my first, my last, you're my everything. You know, a love song to a woman by a man or vice versa. Jesus, folks, is our everything. He's the high priest. That's in Hebrews all over the place. He's also the sacrifice. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's also our creator, our older brother, our savior, our Lord. Do I need to go on and on and on? He's our everything, all sufficient. So he's wearing a seamless garment. Some people see a, an analogy with Joseph. Remember the book of Genesis? In the book of Genesis, Joseph is wearing a beautiful seamless coat. Remember, a garment that he is stripped of. His brothers, fellow Jews, sons of Jacob, betray him and throw him in a pit. Do you remember that? Joseph ends up eventually in prison with, guess what? Two fellow prisoners, just like Jesus with his two compadres there. Um, okay. The weird thing is, that the word for high priest in Latin is, those of you that are Catholics are going to know the word, you ready? Pontifex. You ever heard that word? The official title of the Pope is Pontifus Maximus, the maximum high priest. No, Jesus is the maximum high priest. Why do you mention Pontifus, Joe? Because Pontifus literally means bridge builder. Well, he didn't, he didn't really build any bridges. He was a carpenter. Listen, he built the bridge. No other person could build between sinful mankind and God in heaven. 
a huge gulf existed as soon as Adam and Eve sinned. He builds the bridge that restores the fellowship between man and God, takes the, the blockage away, which was sin and guilt. He takes it in our place, our shame, our guilt, all the sin of the world on him. Um, yeah, do we want to go there? No, not yet. Uh, the cross is an amazing thing. The ultimate insider, Jesus Christ, like that with God, one with God, fellow, he's with God, has face-to-face -face fellowship with God forever, and he's willing to give that all up to become the ultimate outsider. You say, what do you mean by outsider? Well, he's betrayed by a close friend. His disciples all abandon him. John's watching from a distance. We'll learn in a second. His fellow Jews abandon him, the Roman government, and he's got nobody, right? The ultimate insider becomes the ultimate outsider so that you and I can become insiders with God to the point that God calls us daughters and sons of God. Pretty mind-blowing thing. What a, he takes all the evil on him so that we can receive all the goodness of God. Um, we give up our old selves and we, by faith, receive all this from God. Um, okay. I think we have time to do this. Okay. We're going to take some detours. You ready with those magic fingers? I want you to go to Psalm 22 with me. I know we're not done with the crucifixion. He hasn't died yet, but I wanted to do this tonight and then we'll continue. If we have time, go to Psalm 22 Psalms is roughly in the middle of the Bible, just before Proverbs and then Isaiah's afterwards. Psalm 22. John doesn't mention it here, but one of the seven sayings that Jesus speaks while on the cross is, I said it earlier, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It's uh, Aramaic, and it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, you with me? In the Jewish culture, they would often memorize the Psalms, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They would memorize great portions of the Old Testament. They did not have chapter 21, chapter 15, Psalm 30, Psalm 23. Those numbers were added later, okay? Way later. Same thing with the New Testament. So to refer to a certain Psalm, what was common was to quote the first line. Like if I said, you know that song they sing at football games, um, um, Oh Say Can You See? You'd know what I mean, right? The Star Spangled Banner. Let's sing it now, shall we? Okay, never mind. The point is, by saying what he said, first of all, does he mean it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He does. Because God, seeing him wear all that guilt and sin, God cannot look on sin. He has to look away. He has to forsake him. He has to not help his son. So he means it when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first thing. Second thing, every time Jesus addresses God, the father, you look through the whole New Testament, he calls him father, except here. Why? Because the relationship is broken. He can't call him father anymore. He's wearing all the guilt of all these years of sins, billions of people. So he calls him my God, my God. Now read Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a coincidence. It's no coincidence. He's telling them, you religious experts, go look up 
Psalm 22. He doesn't call it Psalm 22. He calls it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would he refer to this Psalm? Not every single verse in it. We could spend a month in this Psalm, but first there's that. Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Skip down to verse six. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. By the way, this psalm was written by David centuries before the Persians invented crucifixion. The Romans, no, the Romans took it and made it more brutal, but the Persians, Iran, that's who started crucifixion. I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It's very sarcastic. They actually say that in, the, in one of the, it's either Matthew or Mark. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even my, at my, brother's, my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast upon you. And from my mother's womb, you've been my God. Do not be far from me for trouble is near and there's no one to help. Verse 12, many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions, tearing their prey, the whipping, opening their mouths wide against me, the mocking. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. That literally happens on the cross, being pulled apart. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth dehydration. You lay me in the dust of death. He's dying. Dogs, verse 16, the word in the Old Testament for Gentiles, Romans, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Does this sound like anybody in the Bible? Moses? No. David? No. Noah? No. Ezekiel, no. I can count all my bones. I don't want to gross you out, but if you're that whipped and the tendons and the muscles are visible, you can see the, you can count your bones, not only from the pain, but vis visibly. People stare and gloat over me. Verse 18. I'm still in Psalm 22. They divide my garments among them and what? Cast lots for my clothing. Just a coincidence? You think he paid the Romans? Hey, when I die, you guys gamble for, come on. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, I'm going to skip down. Um, verse 30, posterity will serve him. Um, by the way, earlier it says that he dies, basically. Um, future generations will be told about the Lord. Oh, the God, whoever this is dies. This is David writing a Psalm in the first person as someone being crucified. Does David fully understand what he's writing? I don't think so. Maybe, but the Holy Spirit's given him the words centuries later, people would read it and go, wow, this is quoted in the new Testament often, by the way, last verse, they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn for he has done it. That is the equivalent of, remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First verse here. He has done it. Equivalent of, it is finished. It's done. 
This and many other passages, we still have time. Now we're going to go to Isaiah 53. Yes, I know he's not crucified yet, but I want to do this now. Go to Isaiah. So take a right from where you are and go to Isaiah 53 with me. Isaiah 53. I'll give you a second to find it. I'm reading NIV, by the way. Um, not always the best translation, but it's uh, very good. Remember that the chapter numbers weren't in the original. He just wrote. They were put in later. So let's start reading in chapter 52, verse 13. 52, 13. See, this is God talking. My servant will act wisely. He's talking about the Messiah. He will be raised and lifted up. You mean like on a cross? And highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Now starts Psalm 53, but I wanted that precursor there. Ready? Who has believed our message and to whom has, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's a hint that some stuff's going to happen. And rhetorically, God's going to ask, who's even believed it of the Jews? Most of them went right over their heads. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. Who's believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, it's a male person. By the way, Psalm 53 is one very rare passage of scripture. You say, why is that? Because the Jews regularly rotate the scriptures that they read in the synagogues to this day. Ask a rabbi when you see one, hey, I'd like to come to your synagogue when you read Psalm 53. When will that be? You know what the answer is? Never. What'd you say, Ken? Oh, did I say Psalm? Isaiah 50. Sorry. I, I'm 67 years old. Isaiah 53. They never read it in the synagogue, ever. <laughs> Okay, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, starts out as a baby, right? Like a root out of dry ground. Israel was dry spiritually at the time. What follows is the first the, and only thing in the whole Bible that tells you what Jesus looked like. Are you ready? You ever see those really handsome pictures with the blue eyes and those cut features? And he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Not necessarily a great-looking guy, not a, a human specimen, average-looking, but with tremendous power. Verse 3, okay, so who is this Messiah, Isaiah? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar or acquainted with grief or suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Okay, so what's, what's he going to do? Verse 4, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. It looks like on the cross, you're watching the crucifixion. Boy, you see that dude? He must have done something. God must really be mad at him. We considered him smitten and afflicted, stricken by God. Okay, here it comes, verse 5. You ready? But he was pierced for our transgressions. Keep in mind, this is written before crucifixions invented. Pierced, what an interesting word. 
Why was he pierced? Notice all the synonyms for sin. Transgressions, synonym for sin. Why was he pierced? For our transgressions. Watch. He was crushed for our iniquities, another synonym for sin. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Okay? There are churches that teach that means healed physically. Okay? Is that right? Yes, but not now. What do you mean? Are we healed in this life? Can we be guaranteed as Christians, if you just have enough faith, you'll never get sick. And if that was true, then you'd never die. But we will. Everybody dies of their last sickness or their last accident, unless there's a rapture. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay. So, okay. Um, but um, are we ultimately healed? Yes. When? In heaven. You will never get sick. You'll never have an ache. You'll never break a leg. You'll never be injured. You'll never die. You'll never cry. You won't need tear ducts in heaven. This side of heaven, in this world, you'll have tribulation, right? Okay, let's keep rolling. How am I doing on time? Not that good. All right. We all, verse six, like sheep. By the way, by his wounds, we're healed. Well, then what does that mean, Mr. Smarty Pants? The answer is in verse five. Pierce for our transgressions, spiritual. Crush for our iniquities, spiritual. The punishment that brought us peace, spiritual peace with God, was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed spiritually. That's what it means. Ultimately, physically. Does that mean you can't pray for healing? Of course you can. You heard me pray for 35 people probably for healing tonight. Is it guaranteed for Christians? No, it's not. Paul had a thorn in the flesh, some sort of a sickness. He asked God, 2 Corinthians 12, three times, please, I can do more for you. God said, my strength's perfection in weakness. The answer is no, I'm not going to heal you of that, whatever it was. He, verse 7, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. What do you mean, Isaiah? He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, he didn't open his mouth, remember? By oppression, verse 8, and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? Meaning, he's going to die, not going to have any kids. Or is he? Because you'll see, he does. Uh, who can speak of his descendants? He was cut off from the land of the living. What does that mean? This is Whoever this is, he dies. Cut off from the land of the living. Is that a sickness? No, it's, he died, right? For the, why was he cut off for the land of the living? For the transgression, which is sin, of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He dies with two evil criminals, right? And with the rich in his death. What do you know? How did Isaiah know that Joseph of Arimathea would, and Nicodemus would take care of the body and old Joe would give him his tomb for three days? Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, sinless. Um, I can't resist telling you that when Joseph of Arimathea gave him his tomb, Jesus, the tomb, Joseph's friends asked him, what are you doing? Giving away? That's a very expensive tomb. You gave it to this Jesus guy. And, and Joseph of Arimathea said, oi, it's only for the weekend. Okay. Verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will. It was the Lord's will to crush him. Do you see that? Who's ultimately responsible? Is it the Romans? Is it the Jews? Is it me? Verse 10, 
It's the Lord's will to crush him. Why? Because that's the only way he can make fellowship with humans happen again. Um, I have a friend in Florida that always says, make sure you do the Jewish voice at least once every Bible study. So that's why I did that for him. James, if you're watching, that was for you. Okay. Um, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, did you see that? A sacrifice. By the way, if you're reading this and you know nothing about Jesus, just a cursory knowledge, wouldn't you go, boy, this sure sounds like Jesus along with Psalm 22. Somebody get their hands and feet pierced and, okay. Um, he, although the Lord makes his life a, a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. You say, what? Who are his offspring? Every Christian that's ever lived. Kay raised her hand. She's right. He'll see his offspring and prolong his days. Wait, you said he died. It has to be a resurrection then, right? And prolong his days. I lost my place. Um, and the will of the Lord will, will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge or knowledge of him, which is what you have and why you're saved, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their sin, iniquity. Anybody not see Jesus here in this? It's amazing. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto what? Death. And was numbered with the transgressors, counted among criminals. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. When did he do that? Lord, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Keep your finger. Um, no, don't keep your finger there. Now go to the right. The easiest way to do this, we're going to Zechariah. You say, I don't even know where that is. Okay, me either. But go to Matthew and take a left. From Matthew, the beginning of Matthew, you take a left, you come to Malachi, or if you're Italian, it's Malachi. Anyway, Zechariah is the book before Malachi. Go to chapter 9 of Zechariah. We're almost out of time. Are you with me? Zechariah 9, verse 9. This is Old Testament written hundreds of years. Everything I've read to you from, the, from Isaiah and Psalms, hundreds of years before Jesus shows up. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. He's talking to the Jews. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation gentle and riding on a donkey palm sunday the foal the on a colt the foal of a donkey now go over a couple pages zechariah chapter 12 um do we want 11 <laughs> no zechariah 12 we'll just go there zechariah 12 verse 10 now will the jews ever see and figure it out oh Jesus was the guy, the Messiah. Verse 10 of Zechariah 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Jews, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on, this is God talking, by the way. They will look on me, the one they have, what? Pierced. You mean like nails in the hands and the feet? Yes, that's what I mean. They will look on me, 
the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Imagine the remorse of realizing for 2,000 years we've you know, maligned the name of Jesus and said it's not true, and, all, and then suddenly the lights go on. This will happen in the end times. During the tribulation, it's the time when God wakes the Jews up to, some are already believers, but he'll wake them up on a mass scale to the fact that he's a Messiah. Don't miss um, the middle of that verse. They will look on, not him, they will look on me. Meaning what? That Christ is speaking here. They'll look on me, the one they have pierced. We could go on and on, but we're just about out of time. Let's go back to John. You remember John, don't you? Okay, so that was a long detour, Joe. I know, but I'm keeping you awake. Um, Let's see. So we already talked about that. Mm -hmm. John's going to skip the fact that the curtain in the temple is torn. We've talked about that before, the separation between the worshipers and the God they worship, because Jesus paid the price, made fellowship possible. He's going to skip um, the on the way there. He speaks to the women and all of that. Uh, yeah, we already talked about that. Yeah. Okay, let's keep rolling. Uh, now I'm going back to John. Um, they take his clothes, they divide them. Let's not tear it, verse 24. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. It says, now he's going to quote Psalm 22. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross, verse 25, stood of Jesus, stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. That may be all we can get to tonight. Okay, near the cross, he mentions some women. The other gospel writers mention some women. Want to know what's mind-blowing? John is the only one who mentions Mary, his mother, being there. If she is to be worshipped and prayed to, then the other three gospels blew it, not mentioning her. Does John mention her by name? No. Just says his mother. Is she greatly honored among all women? Absolutely. Should you pray to her? Heck no. Should you worship her? No. Near the cross, there's four women. His mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. You say, well, I know who his mother is. I know who Mary Magdalene is. Mary Magdalene's the outsider there. She's not a family member. The others all are. Mary Magdalene was not, as you see in every Jesus movie just about, was not a prostitute. You ever heard that? Not true. He casts seven demons out of her. That's pretty bad. But she, there's no, nothing in the Bible that says she was a prostitute. Okay, here, uh, let's go through the roll call. Who are these other gals? Um, and by the way, it took great, uh, great courage for them to be there because to be associated with a guy getting capital punishment, somebody might say, are you here to, because your friends are his? Let's string them up too, right, and crucify them. Um, Mary was told, by the way, in Luke 2 by Simeon in a prophecy that her heart would be pierced through. If you can imagine being a mother watching your son go through this, believe me, her heart was pierced through. Okay, who are these other gals? And we'll quit. Um, her mother's sister, we know from the other gospels, is Salome. 
Have you heard of salami? She invented salami, actually. Sorry, it's the Italian in me. Okay, Salome is the mother of, believe it or not, James and John, the apostles. Wait, that's Mary's sister. Salome is the mother of James and John, who are cousins of Jesus, half cousins on his mother's side. Um, the wife of Clopas, uh, Clopas is a man, um, is, is also named Mary, and then one outsider, Mary Magdalene. What comes out a lot is, is it a coincidence that three out of the four gals are named Mary? Mary is derivative of Miriam from the Old Testament, which is a derivative of the word bitterness. They're watching him die. Bitterness, bitterness, bitterness. Three out of four people there are named Mary, except for John, the women. Um, Matthew and Mark don't mention that Mary was there. Uh, we already talked about that. Um, yeah. And you also know, don't you, that Elizabeth was a relative of Mary, so that John the Baptist and Jesus were maybe second cousins or something. We're not sure, but they were relatives as well. Okay, we're out of time. We're going to close for now. Sorry to quit right then. Next week, we'll watch the conclusion of the cross and Jesus dying and talk more about what it means. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we could spend in your word, uh, mind-blowing stuff. We've seen Pontius Pilate bow to peer pressure and make compromises. May we never do that, God. We know what we believe. We know why we believe it. Help us to never compromise our faith, especially in these days when we're being tempted and sometimes even pressured to do so. Thank you, Father, that Jesus loved us enough to take our place on the cross, die in our place, take our guilt, take our sin, and take our punishment so that we could have relationship with you and with him. We love him and you even more, God, reading all this. We know that we are to love others with that same love. Help us to do so. That's maybe the hardest thing, God. You and Jesus are easy to love. Some people aren't. Help us to love the way you do and to obey you by the power of your Holy Spirit, God. Thank you for the love that sent Jesus to the cross that is the reason any of us are saved and will go to heaven and have a glorious future. We pray all these things with thanksgiving in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone that you don't know. Very important. Those of you on Zoom, God bless you. Thanks for being here. See you next time.